0: Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 96, Uprisings, Enlighteners, and the Great Turkish War. So no new patrons, but it was really nice meeting listener Georgi the other day. As always, anyone who's interested in getting in touch, meeting up, anything like that, just shoot me a message or an email, whatever it is. There's uh, contact forms on Facebook and on the website. Okay, so last time, the Great Turkish War expanded ever larger as Russia joined Venice, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and Austria in their grand war against the Ottomans. The Venetians made huge gains, effectively adding Morea, southern Greece, to their conquest of northern Greece. However, they've taken huge losses to plague and failed to take Negroponte, so it seems like a perfect time for an Ottoman counterattack. Russia joined the war only to have its attempted blockade of Crimea collapse in front of poor logistics and scorched earth tactics. The Poles are still mired in a siege, but not making any real gains. The Austrians, on the other hand, successfully reconquered Buda and Belgrade, effectively pushing the Ottomans back farther than they'd been in a century and a half. Now, while all this was going on, there was an attempted Bulgarian uprising, which was easily crushed once again. But now, with the conquest of Belgrade, other Bulgarians are looking to try again, this time with an Austrian army only 350 kilometers away. But before discussing it, I want to use this as a chance to talk in some detail about how Ottoman rule affected one particular corner of Bulgaria. Now, Much like with the Byzantines, the Ottomans generally preferred to incorporate the local ruling aristocracy into the empire rather than just imposing their own administrators without a local power base. Often, local rulers would convert to Islam and then be sent elsewhere to govern, as some of the last members of the Bulgarian royal family did. In the area around the small town of Ciproci, which is today renowned for its UNESCO heritage carpet making, I have two small of these carpets I purchased about nine years ago uh, in my apartment, they're lovely, Uh, so if you can get one I recommend them, they're a beautiful little piece of kind of contemporary Bulgarian culture and a little bit of history. But anyways, the primary ruling families in this town of Ciproci fled to Dubrovnik after the Ottoman conquest. But it seems other local Christian aristocrats were allowed to govern the region for some time. Over time, its ownership passed to the sultan's family, and eventually as a permanent possession of the sultan's mother. Generally, this would be something that would kind of provide income to someone like the sultan's mother, so she would have some lands, collect some taxes, and instead of going to the Ottoman state, they would kind of support her household. Still, the area did govern itself until about the mid-17th century, so a few decades before this point in the narrative. By this point, though, the Ottomans were concerned about their rule here and took more direct control. But also around that point, the local rulers decided to begin converting to Catholicism in a bid to get Western Europe to really care about them and to eventually aid in their liberation from the Ottomans. Now here I want to talk about a specific man who was integral to this, Petr Parchevich. He was born in Ciprocy in 1612. He was a Catholic, and his family had old Croatian roots. He was sent to Italy to study theology and canon law as a young man, so by the time he returned to Bulgaria in 1643, he was one of the best educated Bulgarians alive. Now at this point, he set about his life's work, the liberation of Bulgaria from Ottoman rule. To that end, he obtained the support of the Pope to travel around the courts of Europe in an attempt to gain favor for the creation of an anti-Ottoman alliance and a restored Bulgarian empire. He did this throughout the 1640s, making grand speeches before kings and legislatures, speaking of a quote, unbearable Ottoman yoke, unquote, and promising he could gather an army of 20,000 Bulgarians. But it should come as no surprise to us that he wasn't met with success. As I've said many times, the rulers of Europe weren't interested in fighting wars of liberation simply because maybe it was the right thing to do. As we'll see many times in this podcast, even when a war is portrayed as occurring for the purposes of liberating oppressed Christians, the real reason is almost always something closer to pure realpolitik. But still, Petr was making some inroads. In 1658, he set up a secret meeting in the Valachian city and sometimes capital of Targoviste between the rulers of Moldavia, Valachia, and church leaders like the Serbian Patriarchate to discuss an anti-Ottoman uprising. Remember, this was back when the Ottomans were fighting in Crete and facing several other internal uprisings. Everything was set for this uprising, with and Moldavia pledging to support Serbian, Albanian, Bulgarian, and Greek fighters. However, Austria pulled its support, And the whole thing had to be called off. Still, the Habsburgs did grant him a noble title for his efforts. In 1658, Parchevich was appointed to run a Catholic diocese around Varna and was made a diplomatic representative for Bulgarians in Vienna. However, by 1661, Rome felt he wasn't really doing enough in his role and he was forced to step down. Though in 1668, he was given a position as a kind of high level missionary to Moldavia. He ultimately died on a diplomatic mission in the Vatican in 1674, so that was the end of his efforts. Now the other figure to mention here is Petr Bogdan, also born in Ciprocy 11 years before Parchevich in 1601. He was also a Catholic Bulgarian who studied in a monastery in central Italy and then at the Vatican between 1620 and 1630, so about from the ages of 19 to 29. In 1642, he was appointed Archbishop of Sofia, where, in light of the negligible Catholic population of the city, his main goal was really to set the groundwork for anti-Ottoman activities there. In the 1640s, Bogdan travelled with Parchevich around the courts of Europe seeking aid for Bulgaria. But his main legacy was really establishing schools, obtaining educational materials for them, and writing the earliest known history of Bulgaria. Bulgaria which was only published in the 1680s after his death. Now, the manuscript of this book was only just discovered in an Italian library a few years ago and is currently being translated. Personally, I'm really excited to read it. Uh, and last time I checked, though, there were still no updates about when this book might come out. I just know there's some historian who's working on it. So we can all wait for that, and I might do some updates uh, when we get some new information. Now, Bogdan ultimately died the same year as parchevich 1674. Now, the broader point was that both men set the stage for both the Ciprovci uprising and later Bulgarian uprisings by building crucial support networks, educational institutions, and helping to raise more consciousness of Bulgarian history and identity amongst their generation. So, that brings us to 1688. Again, with the fall of Belgrade, those who had prepared and then called off several uprisings in the previous decades finally saw their chance. Forces in northwestern Bulgaria were raised and joined the Holy League army prior to them taking Belgrade, but that conquest triggered a larger uprising. However, these new forces were unable to coordinate with the Holy League forces or really do much at all to hamper the Ottoman counterattack. Though we don't have many details, it seems an Ottoman and Hungarian army met and defeated the Bulgarian rebels with some local Albanian support around the modern city of Montana in early October. Ciprovci itself was captured shortly afterwards and destroyed. The region's entire population was killed or enslaved, though some rebel haiduk bands did survive and continue resistance against the Ottomans. Now, What people did survive these brutal Ottoman reprisals largely emigrated westward into Macedonia, northward into Wallachia, and in particular to some Bulgarian settlements along the Danube. Crucially, another portion settled in the Banat region, which is split between Serbia and Romania, where they form a Catholic Bulgarian minority to this very day. Now to wrap up 1688, the new Ottoman Sultan Suleiman II was desperate enough to actually request aid from the Mughal Empire. The Mughals were an empire based in northern India and were an Ottoman ally, but they were too busy with their own wars and were unable to offer any support. Still, just at the end of that year, the Sultan did receive some support from somewhere very different. In late 1688, Louis XIV crossed the Rhine and invaded the Holy Roman Empire. Suddenly, France, the Ottoman Empire's old ally, was forcing the Ottomans to suddenly focus their attention on two fronts. In the last months of 1688, Louis made quick progress, taking many German fortresses in the southern Rhineland, leading to Switzerland. The German states reacted swiftly, withdrawing some forces from the Ottoman front and gathering the rest of what they could from states that were not already involved in the Holy League. Evidently, Louis just expected to march around and win with so many of the regional forces down in the Balkans. The resolve on the part of the German states to actually muster their forces and resist him took him by surprise, and so he withdrew back to France for the winter, Employing a scorched earth policy in his wake, designed to prevent a possible invasion of France. But the damage was done. The Ottomans were now in the perfect position to counterattack, with their enemies distracted and with reduced forces. The first move made in the new year of 1689 was by the Russians, though. Two years after the disastrous first foray into the war, they were ready to try again. In February, 112,000 soldiers departed and met 30 to 40,000 Cossacks in April before moving along the same route towards Crimea, but this time in six columns for better speed and logistics. In mid May, they fought back a Tatar counterattack and by the 20th of that month reached their destination. Finally. Except they found insufficient grass and water for their horses, which made their planned siege impossible, and so they turned back again. Okay, so Russia had failed again, but they weren't out of the war and they had succeeded in diverting Tatar forces into that region from, you know, participating in the rest of the war. So, you know, that was nice for their allies, but there was no real denying that the first two forays of the Russians into the area were complete disasters. On the other far end of the war, the Ottomans were putting together a fast raiding party of Turks, Albanians, and Greeks, which hit various Venetian possessions in central Greece throughout the spring. Now, throughout that whole year, this warfare took a toll on the local population, forced to pay the Venetians, Ottomans, or local Christian or Muslim warlords who had risen up in the chaos to build their own little power bases. Obviously, having to pay taxes to all these various people, whoever was conquering you this week didn't really help people's livelihoods. Now the main Austrian-led Holy League army for their part was still making some progress despite that faraway French invasion. Throughout 1689 they took Nis, Brysven, Wieden, and Skopje, and by the end of the year Serbia was entirely liberated from Ottoman rule. However, the army was also vastly overextended and knew it couldn't defend Skopje, and so they burned it to the ground. The city smouldered for two days, with the Jewish quarter being particularly hard-hit. As a result, Skopje's population declined from 60,000 to 10,000, and the city fell from being a major regional trading center to, well, kind of a minor town. Still, the presence of the army in the area provoked yet another Bulgarian uprising in the region between Skopje, Kustendil, and Pirot a haiduk from Dospat in the Rudopi mountains named Korposh led the uprising. Bulgarians also rose up around Plovdiv and Pazojik. Some local Ottoman allies even turned against the Ottomans, leading to the loss of some fortresses in the area. Now, an Ottoman war council soon met in the regional capital of Sofia around November and resolved to, first of all, kill Korposh before they could basically crush the whole uprising. But just as it happened many times before, the rebels were almost immediately overwhelmed by a far larger Ottoman force. As a result, those participating in the uprising were slaughtered, and Corpoche was put to death on the stone bridge, which still stands in Skopje today. Lastly, this year saw the formation of a grand coalition against France in the Nine Years' War. England, the United Provinces, Austria, Spain, and Savoy all came together. This larger alliance had the potential to take some pressure off Austria in its fighting against the Ottomans, but, well, time will tell. And so, 1689 ended with yet another Bulgarian uprising brutally put down and another failed Russian attack, showing that, well, it was still so incredibly difficult to lead a really successful uprising against the Ottomans without the close coordination of a foreign army. In other words, Greece saw some success because the Venetians were right there and could immediately support anyone who rose up. But in the middle of the Balkan Peninsula, even with a foreign army like the Austrians just a few hundred kilometers away, it was simply far too easy for the Ottomans to step in and crush the rebellion. But despite some of these Ottoman pushbacks, the major Ottoman counterattack against the Holy League was still not quite there. Time and time again, it seems like the Ottomans are in the perfect position, but they don't quite do it. Still, the Holy League would not have to wait for long, because 1690 saw the Ottomans finally bring their full pressure to bear on the Balkan front. They made a major push and successfully recaptured Niš, Vidin, Smiderovo, and Golubac, before moving to Belgrade with 60,000 troops. The city held out for only six days. An Ottoman shell hit the main Austrian powder magazine, blowing it up and forcing the garrison to surrender. The city had been held by the Austrians for just two years. And as a result of this, Serbs began pouring over the Danube north as refugees, marking a major shift in the location where there were major Serbian populations, a shift which would affect history basically to this very day. Now, down south in Morea, the Ottomans counterattacked as well, causing devastation in central Greece. Although that year their last fortress in Morea fell, so you know the Venetians did make some gains even with this devastation. Now that same year the Venetians also took more fortresses along the Adriatic coast, and so overall the Ottoman showing here was a bit less impressive than the major gains made farther north. In September, Imre Tokoli was again released from prison, and sent with an army into Transylvania. Now, if you've forgotten, he was this kind of Hungarian prince who's had an on-and-again, off-again alliance with the Ottomans. Uh, And previous times they've done this, he has failed, but this time he actually won a battle against Austrian and Transylvanian forces, essentially forcing the locals to elect him and recognize him as Prince of Transylvania. So, the Ottomans had an ally ruling Transylvania once again. So... As 1690 wrapped up, the Ottomans had pushed back substantially in the Balkans, but not really anywhere else. With the Grand Coalition beginning to move against France, it was now possible for the Holy League to yet again devote their full resources against the Ottomans. Now that year, the Poles made another attack on Moldavia, but eh, again, it really went nowhere. In Transylvania, Imre Tokoli was forced out of power after suffering a defeat by the Habsburgs, so, well, that didn't last long, and the Ottomans retook some territories along the Adriatic coast and in Greece. But even more substantial was that Suleiman II died at age 49 that summer. His less than four years on the throne certainly hadn't lived up to his namesake, and he was replaced by his brother Ahmed II, the third son of the mad Sultan Ibrahim, to sit on the throne. Like his brother Suleyman, Ahmed had spent his life as a prisoner in the palace. But, fortunately for everyone there, he was not as mad as his father and was intent on building on some of the recent Ottoman military successes. At present, the Danube had essentially created a stalemate with the Austrians a 50,000-man Holy League army was marching south intent on breaking that stalemate. They met a slightly larger Ottoman army north of Belgrade. The Ottomans, though, with the superior force, refused to attack, and so the Austrians withdrew in order to provoke them. The brutal August heat was taking its toll, and the Ottoman cavalry finally decided it was time to attack. The increasingly obsolete Ottoman cavalry though it had very little effect, but it did succeed in burning Austrian supplies, pressing their army to take some quick action. And that's what they did. Austrian cavalry, with support of Serbian militia, managed to get in there and outflank the Ottomans, doing tremendous damage, ultimately killing or capturing about half the army, and successfully killing the very able and capable Grand Vizier, Koprulu Faisal Mustafa Pasha. This was an enormous Ottoman defeat, and the war at this point truly settled into a stalemate. True, the next year the Austrians would take Oradea in modern Romania, and the Ottomans would take some territory in Greece, and the Venetians would attempt and fail to retake Crete, but really for the next three years the whole war went quiet. Now, the war was still hard on the Ottomans and the Venetians, as naval operations in the Aegean once again made getting supplies to Constantinople very difficult. In 1694, the Venetians took the island of Chios, only to lose it and a major naval battle the next year. But still, the Ottomans were unable to make any real inroads into the Venetian controlled region of Morea. Now, up in Russia, young Tsar Peter had finally come of age and was running the country. He resolved to make up for the embarrassing failed campaigns by taking the vital Ottoman fortress of Azov, which prevented Russia from using its rivers to gain access to both the Sea of Azov and ultimately the Black Sea. Now, to do this, he decided against the kind of previous tactics in order to avoid the logistical nightmare of moving an army across the steppe. Instead, he resolved to use the rivers. He took a smaller force of just 31,000, but was unable to block the fortress from being resupplied via the river, and so the siege ultimately had to be abandoned. Another larger Russian army of 120,000 took some Ottoman fortresses along the Don River in modern Ukraine, but it was unable to hold them and so forced to withdraw yet again. So, once again, Russia is not showing itself very capable in this war, even being led by the young Tsar Peter. But Peter was ready to try again the next year, this time with a proper river fleet to ensure a full blockade of Azov. This worked, and the fortress finally surrendered. This action marked the birth of the Russian navy, and finally gave Russia access to a warm water port for the first time in its history. And, as you all probably know, the search for more warm water ports continues to be a core part of Russian policy even today. So by 1695, the Ottomans had lost Azov, nearly all of Hungary, and retaking Morea still seemed just about impossible. To cap it all off, the new Sultan Ahmed II also died at the age of 51, marking the last of Ibrahim's sons to be Sultan. Ahmed's nephew and Sultan Mehmed IV's son now became Sultan Mustafa II at age 31. Mustafa actually led the Ottoman armies on campaign, the first sultan to do so in many years, and partly as a result of this, the next two years saw the Ottomans actually make gains in Transylvania. By 1697, this whole series of wars had been going on for 14 years, but crucially, the nine years war against France was now over, and so Austria could devote 100% of its attention to the Ottomans once again. To that end, an army of around 50 to 55,000 moved to the Danube to engage the Ottoman army waiting at Belgrade. The two forces initially met at Novi Sad, but the Ottomans then moved north to attack the fortress of Seged. However, the Holy League cavalry did capture an Ottoman pasha and the sultan decided to instead now move to Timisoara and wait out the winter there. As they forded the Tiza river, the Ottomans, not realizing the enemy was near, were attacked. They frantically tried to escape and cross the river, leading to wholesale slaughter. As many as 10,000 drowned with another 20,000 killed, with barely 500 lost on the Austrian side. It was now clear that the Ottomans needed to finally bring this war to an end, but before they could do that, the Poles had one small victory against the Tatars at Podhaje. The states involved in the war finally met together in Serbia in late 1698 and discussed the future map of Europe for two months. In late January 1699, the Treaty of Karlowitz was signed. Now Poland gained some territory around the contested fortress of Kamjana Podolski. The Venetians retained much of Dalmatia and Morea in southern Greece, which was formed into the new Kingdom of Morea, which was under Venetian control. The Austrians, however, made the greatest gains. They took Hungary, much of Croatia, and Slavonia, and now had Transylvania under their control instead of that of the Ottomans. While the Ottomans did retain Wallachia, Moldavia, and the fortress of Belgrade, Hungary was lost forever. Austria gained some 60,000 square miles, about 160,000 square kilometers, of land, and was really cemented as a far greater than before, regional superpower. Negotiations with Russia lasted another year and ultimately resulted in the Treaty of Constantinople in 1700. Here, Russian control of the fortress and the region of Azov was confirmed. Both sides agreed not to build fortifications on the border, for the Cossacks and Tatars to attack each other, and to a general 30-year peace. This was vital for Russia because the Great Northern War with the Empire of Sweden had just begun, and they needed to, well, shift their attention. But overall, between these two treaties, it was an enormous loss for the Ottomans, and really the first loss of this kind in Europe that the Ottomans had ever experienced. So it was now a new century and a new world. Of course, all this meant next to nothing for the thousands of Bulgarians who had risen up and died fighting for their liberation. Nothing much changed for them or their countrymen, except that they were trusted less by the central authorities for their disloyalty to the empire. Next time, we'll see what this new post-treaty of Karlovitz world might bring and what the 18th century will bring for Bulgaria, the Ottoman Empire, In the world. I'll see you then. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com and, well, consider donating or just shooting me a message.